you have a copy of the Word of God, I invite you to turn this evening to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. That's a hymn that's very familiar in Northern Ireland, not so much over here, but it's certainly been used of the Lord in many lives to challenge challenge the complacency, to challenge the fears that often may be in the hearts of the Lord's people, especially young people, not exclusively so, but certainly more often, more commonly among young people who are wanting to know the will of God or wrestling with what the Lord would have for them, and certainly have memories of many occasions wrestling in my own heart and having that hymn chosen at a meeting and trying to hold back the tears, wondering what the will of God was for our lives. And certainly, it's the best thing to go through with God. Luke chapter 9 is where we are tonight, and we want to read from verse 1 again. We commenced this chapter last Lord's Day, and we want to read again the opening six verses as we have them here in this portion of the Lord's Word. Luke chapter 9, reading from verse 1, let us hear the precious Word of God. Then He called His twelve disciples together, and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And He said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither of two coats apiece. Whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And they departed, and went through the towns, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere." Amen. May the Lord give the help of the Spirit to understand His Word to every one of us here tonight. Let's bow before the Lord. Let's again ask for His help. Lord, we pray that when we come to Thy Word and it puts before us the example of ordinary men, giving themselves over to do Thy work and perform Thy will. We pray that we will never remove that example, the power of that example from our own conscience. We ask that we would feel the weight of their example, that we will follow in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous. We ask that Thou will give grace to everyone tonight that is here to go through with God. We're living in strange times, and all that has happened over the past year or so has had an impact, perhaps a far greater impact than we can begin to understand upon the kingdom of Christ. And while we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, 
while we understand that thou art sovereign in all thy ways, yet at the same time we know that there are seasons of great grief and sorrow even for the visible church. We recall to remembrance the portion given to us in Ezekiel chapter 9, the vision of judgment that's coming over Jerusalem, and there's a mark placed upon them that sigh and cry. And they were sighing and crying, lamenting over the coming judgment, burdened that God would have mercy. Lord, perhaps we need to do a little more sighing and crying in the days in which we live, as we see little congregations suffering. God, we pray, even tonight, extend thy hand of mercy wherever it is needed. Bless us here and use thy word powerfully in all of our lives. May Christ be uplifted and may his will be done in all of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With the news of the need in Orlando, we've been reminded again, beloved, of the need for preachers. (laughs) There's no getting away from that. So you see a need being met or apparently being met and then all of a sudden there's no longer met and now there's a, there's a gap, there's a hole, it's left there. And in light of what we considered last Lord's Day, I trust you feel something of the weight of the need for men to be raised up, for preachers to be called of God into the ministry. I tried last Lord's Day evening, I trust helpfully, to set before you a context for this stage of the Lord's ministry. I'll not go into all of that again, but really you need to listen to the message last Lord's Day to get a real handle on the passage that is before us tonight and what we're leading into when we will deal, God willing, with verses 3 through 6. But we saw that the appointment of the twelve was an act, first of all, of condemnation. It had a certain judgment message towards Israel. We also saw it as an act of continuity, and then we saw it as an act of compassion, And let me just underline that fact, that there is little more expression of compassion that can come from the hand of God to a community than the fact that He gives them a preacher. Now, that sounds a little self-serving, being a preacher, but that's not my intent to serve myself. It's just simply to lay out the fact. If God withholds from a community preachers, that is not compassion, that is judgment, that is a frightening expression of God's intent that he has nothing to say to them. Turn for a moment to Romans 10, just to underscore this point. Romans chapter 10, familiar, I am sure, to many tonight. But you can see that even with all that's going on at present, and there are certainly, if you keep somewhat abreast of what's going on in the world, there are some kind of... (laughs) Kind of scary developments in certain countries and the erosion of liberty, the blacking out of the internet, the requirement for even more stringent measures toward the citizens that show more state control over their lives. But what is far worse than for a nation to live under tyranny is for a nation to live without the preaching of the gospel. We read from verse 13 of Romans chapter 10, this glorious text from the prophet Joel, 
Paul draws out of this, this, this glorious truth, which was also mentioned by Peter on the day of Pentecost, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Whosoever, if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. So what then is the need? Well, verse 14, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, again quoting here, this time from Isaiah, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And we'll end our reading there. But just take, take note of the emphasis of the apostle. The glorious reality of the work of Jesus Christ is that it allows us to go anywhere and stand before anyone and call them to repentance and faith that they might be saved. But the benefit of his work, man experiencing the benefit of the work of Jesus Christ cannot be done, cannot come to fruition unless someone goes and communicates the message. And without the communication of the message, there cannot then be the benefit There cannot be the reception of the message. There cannot be the forgiveness of sins. All of that doesn't come to pass if there isn't someone to go and preach the Word of God. So when the Lord sends the twelve, and He has been laboring Himself, the twelve have been with Him, others have been with Him, but the work of preaching and the ministry has been His work to do. But at this point, at this juncture, He then calls to Himself the twelve, and gives them the authority, the responsibility, the privilege of taking on part of the same work, to go and preach the kingdom and heal. And we mentioned again this particular aspect of the apostles' ministry, that they were also to heal. You see that at the end of verse 2. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. They performed the signs of an apostle, to use the language of the New Testament. The preachers don't perform these signs today, but they were significant because the Father needed to validate the work of His Son to set aside, to make it clear that Jesus is the Messiah, so He empowered Him to perform miracles. And then to validate those who were taking His message, the fact that they also were sent by God, the apostles were also empowered to do similar miracles. But since then, there, haven't, there has not been this need, because To validate God's man is no longer done by the performance of miracles. The validation comes from by their continuity in the same message. That they continue to say the same thing Jesus said and the same things that the apostles taught. And as they carry on in that same vein, that's what validates them. They, as Paul exhorts Timothy, they preach the word. And so the Bereans, understanding this, whenever Paul comes in, what do they do? They search the Scriptures whether those things were so. That's giving an indication of how men in the future always should be tested.
So Christ sends the twelve on their first mission. And I want us to consider it here this evening and what He tells them before they go. And tonight we're considering verses 3 through 6 of Luke chapter 9 under the title, The First Mission of the Twelve. The First Mission of the Twelve. And note with me, first of all, it was a lesson in learning to trust the Lord's provision. It was a lesson in learning to trust the Lord's provision. I gave indication last week that this was a kind of internship, that the Lord was sending these men so that they could be tested and in some way, to, to, to try them out in the work, and then they were going to come back, and He was going to test them further as to their understanding of who He is and their commitment to Him before they would finally be sent out to perform this work. But look at verse 3. He said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither of two coats apiece, and whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart." And I want you to note a couple of things here. First, they needed to trust the Lord instead of themselves. They needed to trust the Lord instead of themselves. This is what verses 3 and 4 are indicating. Matthew adds the words in his account of this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, freely ye have received, freely give. And when you bring it all together, what they're being taught, what they're being told by the Lord Jesus is that it was necessary for them to go forward and not to accept anything in return for their labor except a place to stay. Freely you've received, freely give. Don't, don't be looking for anything. Don't be trying to get something back for your labor here. Just, just go and take nothing. Take nothing but the bare minimum for your journey. Don't take staves. Don't take scrip. Don't take bread. Don't take money. Don't take two coats. Now, if you, again, read... I think it's Mark's gospel, you find that they could take a staff, they were allowed one staff, but the sense here is neither staves is, don't, don't be taking, don't be accumulating to yourself all the things you think you need. Don't be cumbering yourself with all this stuff. Don't take a walking stick and then a, a, a kind of defense weapon stick or, or anything else you might take with a journey like this. Don't, don't be taking anything, just take the bare minimum. Don't take money. Don't take two coats. This is the word scrip, as you have it there in the authorized version, is a, a leathern sack which travelers and shepherds would use again to store their provisions. So the idea is taking a scrip means you're, you're, you're making provision for yourself. You're adding everything that you think you need. But the Lord's saying, don't take food. Don't take bread. Don't take extra shirts. Don't take the things you think you would need if you are to go on a journey like this. Now, you read this and then you, you come away, even, even as I did reading this, going, man, this is challenging. You know, he's stripping them of everything, of everything material. Just take the basic. Don't take anything more. Turn for a moment to Luke chapter 22, because I think this help, sets a helpful context for us in our understanding of this passage, that what the Lord is doing at this point, at this juncture, is teaching them in such a way that it will increase their faith and stabilize them for all the trials that no doubt will come in the future. And so in Luke chapter 22, verse 35, this event comes up again. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? 
And they said, Nothing. Then said he unto them, But now, he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So there comes a juncture where the Lord says, It's okay to have scrip. It's, a, it's all right to have a weapon to defend yourself. It's okay to have your purse, to have your money. That's fine. And so we come back to Luke chapter 9 and we, we ask ourselves, well, well what, what's the point here? Well, well, you get the point in Luke 22, don't you? That, that he was testing, he said, when I sent you without anything, what did you lack? And their response is nothing. They didn't lack anything. And so the lesson had been learned. That when they are without material things, when they don't have all the natural provisions that man might accumulate to himself in, in, the, in the natural preparation for a task or for a journey or whatever it might be, if they're stripped of those things, it doesn't matter. The Lord will provide. It is normal for men to prepare before any task or mission. In fact, not only is it normal, we might say it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to prepare Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3, A prudent man forsaith the evil, and hideth himself, but the simple pass on, and are punished. And that's just one text among numerous others that could be taken, such as even considering the ant and passages like that, that give the indication of preparation for the future. Looking ahead, seeing what the need is, and, and doing what needs to be done today with an eye to the need in the future. And so as they were sent out on their mission, they could think, well, I'm going to need this, I'm going to need that, I'm going to need the other. And so they would plan and prepare and say, we'll, we'll grab this, grab that, grab the other, and, and pull it all together and carry it on our backs, and away we go. And the Lord says, I don't want you to do that this time. I don't want that to be the way you head out this occasion. Don't take all these things. You see, there are times when the Lord reserves the right to strip us of our preparation to teach us to depend on Him. And sometimes, sometimes you're, you go through experiences where you're not sure whether, was this a lack of preparation or is the Lord teaching me something here? And I certainly had those occasions in my own life where I'm wondering, is, was that my fault or is the Lord teaching me something here? Uh, I remember one occasion, we, it was very early on in my experience of preaching on the Lord's Day uh, in a pulpit, and I was asked to preach in our little church way over in the West, to, in the county of Donegal in Ireland, we have a little country church over there, and I was asked to preach one Lord's Day, and it's about two hours drive from Balamoney where we lived at the time, we were just married, I think, not very long, and off we went, it's a two-hour drive, and about an hour into the journey I realized I don't have my notes for the morning message, and I started to panic, and in the evening, I didn't even have an evening message really that I could switch with because the plan was, what I'd been asked to do was to testify and preach in the evening and, and preach a message in the morning. So it had been set up that way. So we're halfway <laughs> across the country, and I'm, I'm in the passenger seat, like scribbling everything I can remember <laughs> from the sermon so I could go up and preach. And I remember the panic, like the, being petrified, like, why is this going to turn out? Well, how's this going to go? I'm going to stand up in a pulpit. I've hardly ever done this in my life. And I'm going to have to preach basically without notes, just what I can scribble down in, in the, the hour I had left in the journey. But I, I remember, I distinctly remember, I, I can't remember the preaching or how it sounded, but I, I do have the distinct memory of, 
of coming away with a sense of the Lord gave help this morning, that real sense that the Lord upheld and, and gave the grace necessary. And I say to you, I don't know, was that lack of preparation? You should have remembered your notes. That was foolish. Or did, was the Lord working in some way? The same thing happened actually even earlier than that, just coming to mind as well, on an occasion when Melanie was asked to testify at a little mission hall and uh, became a church plant, and she had been asked to give her testimony there. It was like an afternoon meeting service. And I had been there some months prior to testify. And then they said, we'd love to have your wife down sometimes to testify as well. So that was arranged and off we went and she was to testify. When I got there, when I arrived, they said, they, they said something that indicated they were expecting her to testify and then for me to preach. Well, I had no knowledge of it. I had no recollection of anyone ever telling me you have to preach. But I had preached the previous day in the open air. I thought, well, I've got this little pocket Bible and it has a post-it note in it. It has three headings. <laughs> and I'll do my best. And again, again, the Lord helped. I, 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 that's all I remember. It felt like the Lord, I don't have a recording, maybe thank the Lord for that. But I had the distinct sense that the Lord helped. And certainly, I have, I have no recollection of anyone ever asking me to preach. I'm sure I would not have forgotten that. So again, you're, you're thrown in. You're thrown into the scenario. Will you trust the Lord? Will the Lord come through for you? Can you depend on Him when you haven't made preparation, when He throws you into the middle of something? And, and this, this happened numerous occasions. I could give, I could go on and on. <laughs> oh, I'm, 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 I'm going to hold back. I, I could tell stories all night. About times when you're just thrown into this scenario and all you can do is say, Lord, help. And then you go. Because that's all the time you have. And it was the same even with the Lord's provision, even in practical things, how the Lord was so merciful to us to teach us these things early in life. So I'm wrestling over the call of God and the sense of going to the Whitfield College, and I'm praying about it, and Lord, what's your will? And this distinct sense that this is the will of God. And immediately then thinking, oh, well, I, I barely too pennies to rub together. I don't have the money to stop working and go to college. And I'm, I'm, I'm then wrestling over the, the practical provision. How is this going to work? I'm reading through my Bible, just daily readings. And I came across Job chapter 38, verse 41. Who provideth for the raven his food? I'll never forget that. That's, that's probably, I don't know how many years ago that was. Maybe 2004. Yeah. February 2004, I'm just recalling now, reading my Bible, I can still see myself in my bedroom reading the Scriptures and reading that text, who provideth for the raven his food? And having this sense of calm. The Lord will provide. He provides for the raven. The raven isn't exactly the most eminent bird in Scripture, and yet God provides for the raven. How will he not even more provide for his children? for those for whom he has given his son. So you learn these experiences, and there are others. There are other experiences that we learned early. There were times of great trial and wrestling, and again, even at the end, of the close of our time in Australia, I maybe I've mentioned this before in terms of wrestling again over the matter of going to college. And we took a little trip to New Zealand I'm giving some of these practical accounts because I, I think it might help some of you who may be wrestling with the, the will of God and, and these arguments come in about, can I do it? Will the Lord provide? Well, I'm a living testament and I have way more stories than what I'm parting to you tonight. But on this occasion, we're coming near the end. 
And I'm wrestling over going to college, and again, the same battle about, can I do this, and, and how will I provide for the family, and so on. And there we were, taking a trip to New Zealand, staying with a friend. As far as I was aware, almost no one except the church in Tasmania knew where I was in terms of country, but even them, I don't know anyone there knew who we were staying with. We were staying with friends that had emigrated uh, from Northern Ireland and moved to New Zealand, and we were staying with them. And off we went one day to see around somewhere, and we're talking about it, Melanie and I, resting over it, and I just came to this, this, this moment of submission. I know this is the Lord's will. This is what we have to do, to just trust Him. This is His will. And when I got back that night, there was a, there was a voice message left for us on the phone of this friend of ours that as far as I was aware, no one knew where we were, and a voice message from one of the ministers in Northern Ireland saying, I hear you're coming home soon. I just want you to know if you have nowhere to stay, there's a place for you here. I couldn't believe it. My Adam and John nearly hit the floor. Like, how does he, and to this day, I don't know how he knew <laughs> when we were there. It was, it was a vacation. It was, it, no one, as far as I'm aware, knew where we were. But he found out, he called, and he said, when you get back, if you have nowhere to live, and we didn't, there's a place here for you to stay. These are just some indications of, of early lessons of trusting the Lord. The, the, the kind of experience you have right here in Luke chapter 9, where he is not expecting them to live their lives continually, just casting aside their money and throwing away extra stuff that they might need and keeping themselves vulnerable to thieves and robbers who might come and, and take, take them and take everything they have and not having swords or some mechanism of defense they will have that in the future. That's fine. That's, that's normal. But, but they have to learn something here. They have to learn to trust the Lord and His provision and not be so bent on the fact that if I can't demand that everything is perfectly laid out and everything is all organized, if I can't see that, then I'm not taking a step of faith. And the Lord says, I don't want you to live that way. I want you to learn that when I've called you to do something, the particulars will take care of themselves. Whatever you need, doesn't mean to say you throw caution to the wind and just throw your money around. But whatever state you find yourself, I will meet your every single need. So they needed to trust the Lord instead of themselves. They also needed to trust the Lord instead of taking advantage of their power. Imagine how wealthy they could have become with the power the Lord granted to them. Imagine what people would be willing to pay if someone comes and says, I can raise the dead, I can heal your sick, I can give sight to the blind, I can cleanse the leper, whatever it is you need, I can do. When you talk about fast track to riches, of course this, we see this played out even today. People who promise a lot and take advantage of the people who are in need. And the Lord is teaching them here, don't dare go into a place of need and take advantage of them. Don't go into a place where people are desperate, and you're able to meet that desperate need, and you're just there to take advantage of them. Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor script, neither bread, neither money, neither of two coats apiece. Whatsoever house you enter into, there abide and thence depart. Don't don't in any way take advantage of where it is 
you find yourself. Now, we don't have the power to heal like they had, so we don't have the same opportunity to take advantage of people as they had, but preachers can still be entitled. And let it be underlined that if you're called to preach, if you're called for some aspect of ministry to the mission field or to some other aspect of the Lord's work that He is stirring in your heart to do, put away any ideology, any thought that you have a right to certain things. That you can go and make demands of people. If you're called to preach, you go and preach and you leave the rest to God. That's what you do. I like what C. Jefferson said, a little book he has on preaching. And he said, A man who will not preach at all, unless some church puts into his palm the precise sum which he thinks his preaching worth, ought to be left to die with all his sermons in him. (laughs) You know it's true. (laughs) Young men with the ribbon on their air uh, diploma, still unfaded, ought not to go into the market shouting, so many sermons for so many dollars. The supreme question is, where can I work? Where will the followers of Christ give me a chance to work? Where can I make my life count for most in the extension of the kingdom? The man who goes into the world with these queries burning in his heart will not long be without a congregation, nor will he lack shelter and raiment and food. And I've heard the stories the men who go and their first question is, what will I be paid? Jefferson puts it in perhaps the most polite way that such men ought to be left to die with all their sermons in them. Oh, yes, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Paul was going to make that plain, 1 Corinthians 9, other passages where he makes it plain of the, the right for those that preach the gospel, should live by the gospel, and so on and so forth. But there has to be an element of faith, doesn't there? There has to be an element of trust, an element of understanding that I just need to know what the will of God is, where to be, what doors he's opening And how many, how many, oh, how many only God knows who went through all the seminary training and went through all the practical rigors of of getting prepared to preach and then they come to the, the final hurdle and there's a possibility of a door opening before them and they say, ah, but there's just one stipulation here. What are you going to pay me? And with that, the door closes and then you talk to them and they're, something else entirely. God has shut the door. Note also they need to trust the Lord instead of controlling their circumstances. They need to trust the Lord instead of themselves, instead of taking advantage of their power, and also instead of controlling their circumstances. This 
This, we've touched on this already, but particularly in verse 4, I want you to see what he says. Whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. What's the point of this? Why, why is he telling them this? Wherever house you go, whatever house will accept you, wherever you go, the first place to open their door to you, go in there, stay there, and don't leave there until you're leaving the town. What's the point of that? He is teaching them contentment. You see, if he hadn't said this, you know what some of the preachers would do? Maybe not the apostles, but <laughs> certainly there's, a, there's something, a lesson to learn here for everyone. What they do is this. They'll go into a place, and whoever first opens their door, they go in there. But they plan to stay a little longer, and all of a sudden some, some wealthy person comes along and says, hey, you can come and stay with me. And they kind of look around at the little dusty hovel that they have to stay in, and they look at this man with all of his wealth and ability, and there they are eating rice and beans every night with this family, and this man can put on the best of meals, fit for a king. And the temptation then is to, oh, you know what, thank you for your hospitality, brother so-and-so over there, he's, he's willing to take me, I'll get out from under your hair and off I'll go. But what, 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 they'd, be, what they'd be saying is it, it would be indicating a lack of appreciation for the hospitality and a sense again of entitlement and a lack of contentment with what the Lord had provided in His kind providence that when they walk into a place and someone says, hey, come brother, stay with us. They look around it with disdain and say, well, if something better comes along, I'll go to that. The Lord says, don't dare. Don't dare. Other passages, he goes on to tell them that whatever they put in front of you, you eat it. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> I maybe shouldn't be saying this, but anyway, I'll say it. Maybe I'm far enough away that it'll not come back to bite me. When I first went to visit the college, they have open days every year, and I went to see how you know, what college life was like, to see the surroundings and all the rest of it. And I was there, and then I was asked, you know, would you like to stay for lunch? Well, part of this is my own fault. When I was growing up, the only vegetables I would eat were raw. I would eat raw broccoli, raw cauliflower, raw carrots, uh, raw cabbage. I'd eat it all raw. If you cooked it, I wouldn't touch it. And that was just, that was just me growing up. I've, I've grown up a little but, but actually, the way, the way that what the Lord used was that moment. Because I was invited to have lunch with them, and they put on lunch, and there was cooked veg in front of me. And I, I'm going, oh dear. <laughs> and I just, I just bowed my head as thanks was, some, someone was offering thanks for the food. And I said, Lord, help me here. <laughs> and, and it was the passage, it was the passage, I'm not even sure where it is, I didn't have it for tonight, but where he, he taught them, whatever they put in front of you, you, you eat that. And this is coming to my mind. And I'm thinking about it, and there it is, something I would never touch, ever. And it's there in front of me, and I'm going to clean this plate up. And so I did. And I, I went through two years of college, and ate what was put in front of me, and learn to enjoy cooked vegetables forevermore. <laughs> whatever is put in front of you, eat. But, it, but it's all, it's all, it's not just, and, and this is what is lost. This is, this is what some young men don't get, and they're called to preach, and they need to learn things like this. They need to learn that, that sometimes you're going to be in scenarios that don't quite fit where you're comfortable. When we went to Australia, we, we, we stayed with people, and we had lunch with them every Lord's Day. 
And I heard about others who went there to the same place and they refused to eat with them because what they put in front of them wasn't quite what they would eat. So I'm saying all of these things in part with a lot of experience, sufficient experience to have seen enough in my time that completely goes against what the Lord has plainly taught. When you go into a place, you accept the doors that open and you preach the gospel there and you stay with those people and you be grateful for whatever it is that you have. And we've, Dr. Melly, we've, we've lived in some interesting places. We've lived in places that were really tiny. Emphasis on the really. And some places that were damp and some that were freezing, like you couldn't heat them up no matter how hard you tried. Some houses that weren't even houses at all. Some that were high crime areas. Not and all it goes. And every single time, there's never been a murmur. And thank God, neither for my wife. You see where you are. You accept it. You thank the Lord for it. If you're called to preach, I may be talking to a very small minority here tonight in terms of some of these practical things. Certainly, you can extrapolate it out to all Christians. But let it be particularly for those who think that the Lord has called them. Take these things to heart. Having food and raiment, let us be there with content. 1 Timothy 6, verse 8. Again, the Scriptures are full of men who are wealthy. It's not that God is anti-wealth. But God is anti-discontentment, entitlement. So, moving on, I want us also to note it was a lesson in learning to discern the Lord's judgment. Not only was it a lesson in learning to trust the Lord's provision, but a lesson in learning to discern the Lord's judgment. Verse 5, Whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. I want you to flip over to Matthew 10 just to see a little more detail in terms of this language. Because he gives more information at this point, and I think it's helpful for us to read it. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 11. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when ye come into an house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. This is a frightening insight into how the Lord deals with those who will not receive the gospel. And he details here, again, the same information in terms of wherever you go, if there's someone who will open up their home to you, go there and stay there until it's time to leave. And if the house is worthy, if they open up to you, if they receive your words, you give them your shalom, 
You indicate to them that the peace of God is in this home. They have received the Prince of Peace. They have received the truth of God. The peace of God can be known right there. But if they don't, if they will have no time for you, if they will not receive you nor hear your words, and of course that really is the bottom line, isn't it? They have a problem with what they're saying, with what they're preaching, with with what they're putting before them. They're calling them to repent and believe. They're pointing them to Jesus as the Messiah. They're, they're, They're expounding all these truths that had gotten John into trouble, had gotten Jesus into trouble, and now, inevitably, they're going to feel the weight of that same experience of some not accepting what they have to say. And what are they to do? When you leave, shake off the dust of your feet. This was a practice of the Jews. This was common. And it was common in the context that when they would be traveling around Gentile regions and they would come back into Israel, back into the Holy Land, one of the things they would do to indicate that they were leaving the unclean behind was that they would shake the dust off their feet. They would remove the the, the, the tainted Gentile dust as they came back into the land God had given them. And what the Lord is saying here, what what He's saying is, if you go into a home and they will not hear what you have to say, you treat them exactly as if they themselves were unclean Gentiles. Now, this wasn't you. John the Baptist had been doing something similar. He had been calling them to be baptized. And the baptism that he was calling them to was a baptism that was used predominantly with proselyte believers, those who were Gentiles who came in from other regions and had turned to believe in the, the, the understanding of the truth as, as we find in the Old Testament Scriptures. They become Jews by faith. And so they, they were asking, when John comes along, he's saying, I want all, all of you, to be baptized in that which was once really only for the Gentile. I want you all because you all are unclean. You all need to turn from your sin. The entire nation has turned its back on God by and large, and we all need to be washed. And the Lord is saying something similar. It's a different practice, but again, it's, it's, it's tying in the unbelieving Jew that he's just like the unbelieving Gentile. He's unclean. He's unworthy. And the Lord is saying, if you go into some Jewish home, And they won't receive you. They won't hear you. You go into a city, you go into a town, and not one person will open their door to you. Let them see you shake the dust off your feet. Let them see you communicate by this activity that they are as unbelieving, perishing Gentiles. It's another symbol of judgment. Then he gives them a particular insight, something that those Christ-rejecting Jews would not understand. It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The cities of the plain that God sent fire and brimstone upon because of the fact that there were so few who believed and their sin was so heinous before God, those cities that were burnt up because of the extent of their sin, those cities that became forever an example of what not to do and not to be, 
The Lord says, that city, it doesn't matter how many synagogues are in it. It doesn't matter how devout it appears to be. How many Pharisees that live within it. How many rabbis, doesn't matter. It'll be worse for them on the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah. Leonard Ravenhill once wrote a book less well known than his better known Why Revival Tarries, but he wrote another book along a similar vein, but with the title Sodom Had No Bible. And the thrust of the book is this. If God so judged Sodom, yet Sodom had no Bible, how is it that we think we'll escape the judgment of God? This is frightening. And should there be someone here tonight, let me not miss out the application here for you, If it could be said within your heart of hearts that you have no acceptance of the gospel, you have no love for Christ, and that if someone came preaching his word, came into your territory, you wouldn't really be running to offer them an opportunity to stay with you. The Lord Jesus says the day of judgment is going to be worse for you than the people you look in your Old Testament and think these are the worst people that we can find in Scripture. He says, you're worse. Your judgment will be worse because your sin is greater. Now, I can't see your heart. I cannot read the condition of your heart. And while this was given particularly to the apostles to give them insight into the gravity of unbelief, surely we should not miss it. We should not miss the gravity of our unbelief, thinking that we can carry on rejecting the message of the gospel, rejecting the Christ of God, and thinking we'll get away with it. It will be worse. It will be worse than the great criminals that you can imagine. It will be worse for you because you have the Word of God put before you. Did the apostles ever have to do this? Did they ever have to shake the dust off their feet? Indicate the judgment that was upon the Jews? Yes, they did. We find that Paul had to do it against the Jews in Antioch and Pisidia. In Acts chapter 13, verse 50 and following, the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts but they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came onto Iconium. Not only there, also in Corinth. When Paul was in Corinth, we read of his experience with the Jews again, Acts 18, verse 6. When they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go on to the Gentiles. So they had the experience. And I'm quite sure the, a similar experience can be had today. Now, this was particular to the Jew. It had a particular significance to the Jew. And this is the point that the Lord is giving them indication. This is what 
as you deal with Jewish people and they reject you, I want you to respond in this way because the impression of your action will disgust them. They will be horrified that you're treating them like a Gentile. You do it today. If I was to go and had to do it or some other preacher had to do it in some area because they were rejected, you shook the dust off your feet, no one would even know what it meant. But the Jews knew. They had done it many times. Any time they had traveled beyond the borders of their own coasts. So the Lord, the Lord is saying, He's telling them, whosoever will not receive you, it doesn't matter who they are, don't, don't be impressed by their wealth, don't be impressed by their power, don't submit to them simply because they're of prestigious notoriety in the city or in the town, whosoever will not receive you, whatever the city is, wherever the place is, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. You see, the Lord, as He taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 6, Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, as they trample them under feet and turn again and rend you. There's a time when you have to recognize that what you're trying to put before, the value of the gospel that you're presenting to someone, the good that you're trying to do for someone is utterly rejected, and you realize this, this, is, this is throwing pearls before swine. It's not always easy to discern that moment, but the Lord indicates that this is, a, is, a, is, a, is an open practice to perform, to realize no one wants it, so don't continue to give it to them. Move on. Go somewhere else. Preach the gospel elsewhere. I sometimes wonder about that in relation to aspects of the Lord's work, I guess, that every man has to discern for himself what the will of the Lord is. But I remember speaking to Dr. McClelland about this very thing, at least in part. I had not been long in North America. It may have been, in fact it was, it was the very first week of prayer. So I arrived at the end of January and this was May. And I was curious, trying to pick the brains of a senior man. I was curious. I asked him, did, did you hit a point, did you ever hit a point in your ministry, Dr. McClelland, when... You kind of sense, Lord, either you do something here or I'm, I'm gone. If, if there's not a reception, if there's not, if there's not a, a people who will gather around the Word, if there's, if there's not something that is done by the Lord, then, then why, am I, why am I continuing? And he said, yes, absolutely. He said it was about two years or so in Toronto. And I, I just sensed that there, there really was, nothing was happening. And I wondered and I questioned uh, and I was at a point, a breaking point, a sense of, Lord, either you do something here or I'm going out in the ministry. And, and I know other men who've done the same. I don't know if it's always easy to discern. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but I can understand it. That's why I was asking. I was asking it because I was, I was sensing it myself, not in terms of I was going through some particular trial. I had just arrived. <laughs> But I, I had this sense of, if, 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 if this doesn't go forward, if, if, this, if something doesn't happen, if there isn't forward momentum and souls being saved and people receiving the gospel and, and the Lord's sheep gathering around to hear the word and all the other practical aspects of the work of God, if there isn't a sense of, of forward momentum here, 
Is there a point when you come to and you realize, am I really meant to continue? And if there be someone here tonight and you find yourself in that scenario, all I can say is you need to seek the Lord. You need to seek the Lord. It's not always easy to discern whether the Lord would have us to trundle on faithfully or whether what he's indicating is it's time to move on, go somewhere else. But the Lord is saying here, this is what you're to do. If you're rejected, walk away. And that brings us then thirdly and finally, it was a lesson in learning to obey the Lord's command. It was a lesson in learning to obey the Lord's command. Verse 6, they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They went at his command. They obeyed his will. They did what he asked them to do. This is what the Lord asks. To go and preach. Now theirs was more an itinerant ministry Again, we dealt with this somewhat last week. The Lord was spreading. He was trying to reach as many as he could before the, the climax of his ministry. He is, he is looking over the thousands who are perishing, those who are as sheep without a shepherd, according to the end of Matthew chapter 9. And he has compassion on them. He has a burden for them. He calls the twelve to him. He sends them out to more rapidly fulfill his desire in reaching souls with the gospel. And he says to them, go, just, just go and do what you've seen me do now for over a year. Go and preach the gospel and heal everywhere. Go and do what you've seen me do. And you can do nothing more pleasing to the Lord than to do what he asks of you. And so it's not all that he calls into full-time ministry, into some aspect of, of, of preaching or, or missionary work and endeavor. It's not everyone that is called to such work, but, but we have to step back and make sure the entire congregation feels the, the impact of this. These men simply did what the Lord called them to do. And in this case, it was preaching. But the question comes to you tonight, just as it comes to us all, what has he called you to do? It's one of the questions I like to ask people. I like to inquire, but what, what do you feel is, is the Lord's calling in your life? Where are your gifts? What do you sense is, is something you can contribute to the kingdom? Because let me tell you, beloved, time is short. Time is so short. We don't have time to spend years trying to figure out whether or not God has something for us to do. We need to figure it out as soon as possible. We need to make it a matter of prayer. We need to understand this is my place in the kingdom. This is what the Lord has called me to be and to do. This is where my gifts are best expressed. And I want every last person here to understand that. Not because of any benefit it will bring to me, but because this is how you serve the Lord. You see, that's my place. I know it. I don't have to be quizzed about it. I know it. And it's tragic. It's utterly tragic whenever we enter into a certain mode of thinking that we eliminate every single possibility except for that which is comfortable to us. Don't think 
just because it's comfortable, that that means that's what the Lord's will is for your life. Don't, just by the natural gravity of the circumstances of your life, think, this is where I'm meant to be. Get before the Lord. Be absolutely certain this is what I can contribute. You know what? I can help with the food, the college suppers. You know what? I can help with some practical matters around the church. You know what? I can give food to people when they're sick. I can support people in certain ways. Maybe financially I'm blessed. I'm able to help with missionaries on the field and other aspects of the work of God. You know what? And what's coming to mind is someone I worked for. A man I worked for just before I went into college, I mean, he was, he was quiet. He was a very quiet, very shy, not outgoing at all. I mean, <laughs> at least that was the impression I got on first meeting him. And I think to some degree he was introverted. But when the Lord saved him, he told me, I, I just, I just had, had something I needed to do. And the only thing I could think of that I could do was I could stand on the street and hand out tracts. I couldn't preach. I couldn't enter into conversation and witness eloquently, but I, I could give out the literature. And every single Saturday he went out and he just stood for a certain period of time and he just gave out literature. That's what he did. And he worked endless hours Monday through Friday. Worked hard. But on Saturdays he went out in the morning and gave out literature. And that was something he could do. He found it out. He, he learned this is something he could do. And beloved, that, that, that's the key. It is just finding. I don't know. I'm not saying to you, right now you need to go out through all the towns of South Carolina and preach the gospel. It would be great if you felt that burden and we'd love to hear from you. But whatever it is, it's just knowing that I've heard from the Lord. The Lord has sent us to do this. This is what He's commanded of us. This is what He wants of us. Let us go. And giving your heart to it. So what is it? Have you answered the question? Are you clear in your mind? Do you know what it is that you're gifted in where the Lord may use you in some aspect of his kingdom and are are you doing it? I'm aware that many of you are and have been for many, many years But I don't know if all of you understand what the Lord's will is. It'd be an awful thing to stand before Christ with years wasted when you had energy and you had strength and opportunity. I think I can say in all honesty if I could duplicate my life I'd happily do it and give it to the exact same thing that I've been doing since the Lord saved me. Just doing what I sense is His will in my life. That's where the great happiness is. That's where you know the nearness of the Lord. The disciples will get to it. They're going to come back amazed at how the Lord used them. The devils were subject to them. They get a little bit carried away, in fact. But there is no greater joy than knowing this is where I'm meant to be. 
And this is where I'm going to stay until the Lord says otherwise. Apply yourself in some aspect that contributes to the kingdom, services the church, builds up the saints, reaches the lost. And the Lord help you. Let's bow together in prayer. I'm sure those apostles were scared. Scared to go out without Jesus Christ by their side. All they had ever known was the Lord there watching him, seeing all of his activity, his preaching, his handling of the naysayers. Now he's sending them out. Off you go. That can be scary. But it's not as scary as saying no to his will. It's not as scary as facing the Lord, being overwhelmed at his glory and his salvation in your life, hearing the chorus of heaven, entering into the praise of the church triumphant. And I don't know if there can be any sense of disappointment. I don't know. But go through with God thy vows to pay. Lord, the need is so great in these days. I look down and I think I see many who if they could regain their youth, they would give themselves with even more vigor to serve Thee. It is in serving Thee that they have found the greatest joy, the greatest contentment. Lord, I ask that those that still have youth and vitality may learn to find their place, understand the will of God for their lives, and to present their bodies a living sacrifice before Thee. So Lord, work in all of our hearts. Make us all more and more surrendered to Thy will. And whatever we come up against, whatever difficulties we face, may we possess a firm resolve to continue to do whatever Thou wilt have us to do. Before we part from this place, we pray for those that are unsaved. We ask, dear God, that no one here in this place will come under the judgment that our Lord uttered towards those that would reject the apostles and their words. May all of them be safely found in Christ, the refuge for sinners. May they all have their sins forgiven. May they all have peace with God. Again, receive our thanks for thy word, for its instruction and help. Bless us. Bless our fellowship in these remaining moments. 
Take us to our homes safely, we pray. Be with us in the week that is before us. In all the matters and affairs that relate to thy people, may they know the presence of God with them. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.